Tonight we are going to continue the series, Defending the Faith. This is part two. We've got a lot of information, so get ready. We're going to start out in 1 Peter 3.15. This is the foundational text for this teaching. It says, But sanctify the Lord in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So the Bible here is telling us that we are required to give a defense to anyone who asks us. The CEV version says, be ready to defend it. The ESV says, always be prepared to make a defense. The GNT says, be ready at all times to answer anyone. The Message Bible says, be ready to speak up. And the New Living Translation says, always be ready to explain. So what we're talking about when we're talking about giving a defense is what we refer to in theology as apologetics. And the word apologetics means to give a defense for what one believes to be true. So if you believe the Bible to be true, do you have an, a defense? Can you give an explanation for why you believe what you believe? It actually refers to a legal inquiry asking, why are you a Christian? If someone came up to you and said, why are you a Christian, could you explain that? And I would venture to say, which is pretty sad, probably 60% of people could not explain why they're a Christian. Just, well, that's what I believe. The only way to do this effectively is to study the reasons why you believe what you believe. Now, we may think this is a new thing, but actually Paul encouraged this in his teachings. Go over to Philippians 1.7. Philippians 1.7, again, we encourage you to follow along in your Bible to make sure that what we're preaching is truth. In Philippians 1.7 from the New Living Translation, it says, So it is right that I should feel as I do about you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. So right there, Paul says that part of his regular life, Part of his daily routine is to defend and confirm the good news. Now, if Paul had to do that, why do we think that we wouldn't have to do that? Then if you jump down to verse 16, it says this, They preach because they love me, for they know I have been appointed to defend the good news. Look what Paul is saying. He says that my mission, my calling is to defend the good news. Now, you may think, okay, that's Paul, but I'm just a Christian. You know, I don't hold any great position. Uh, but Paul made apologetics a requirement for church leadership. So if you have any leadership position whatsoever, go over to Titus 1.9. Titus 1.9. And again, I'm going to read this part from the New Living Translation. And Paul is actually addressing Titus, and he's giving information on requirements for being in leadership. He says he must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught, 
then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they were wrong. That's apologetics. Showing people why they're wrong according to what the Bible says. You are defending your faith and your beliefs. Now, where did the apostles get these ideas that they should even have to do that? Jesus himself. I mean, if we want to look at what to do, we got to go back to Jesus. And remember, Jesus said, I don't say anything, I don't do anything, but what my Father says or does, so he's getting it from the Father. So let's look at a couple examples of that. Jesus often stated that we should believe in him because of the evidence he provided. So a misnomer that a lot of Christians feel or think is that we should just follow things by blind faith. You know, if somebody says it, okay, just believe it. But even Jesus said, I'm going to give you proof of who I am. Look at John 2.23. And I'll read these from the New King James Version. John 2.23. It says, now when he, and this is speaking of Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he did. Notice, it doesn't say they believed when they heard him speaking. It says they didn't believe till they actually saw the signs that he was doing. Then jump over to John 10.25. John 10.25. The Bible says if you're going to prove something, let it be with two or three scriptures. We're going to give you a whole lot more. In John 10, 25, it says, Jesus answered them and said, I told you, and you did not believe. Here he says, I'm speaking, I'm trying to say something to you, and you didn't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness to me. So Jesus is focusing on the works as the evidence of why to believe that he is who he says he is. Then in John 10, 38, he says again, though you did not believe me, so again, I'm speaking to you, but you didn't care what I was saying, believe the works that they may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So Jesus was very strong on teaching that defending your faith, showing proof, should be part of your lifestyle as a believer. Now, people in general rightly refuse to believe something without evidence. It is not our nature just to take something by what somebody says. We want proof. Well, why is that? Because God created us as rational beings. So we should not be surprised that he wants us to live rationally. I mentioned this last week, uh, but guess what? Every one of you have a brain. Now, some of you spouses may question that on the other partner, but you do. And God gave you that brain for the ability to think. So he expects us to use it. Uh, Norman Geisler said this, This does not mean that there is no room for faith, but God wants us to take a step of faith in light of evidence rather than to leap in the dark. Even the Bible says faith without works is 
dead. Now, some say, well, the word does not need to be defended. It should just stand on its own. But if someone were to say that, then my question to you is, but which of the world's writings are the word of God? So think about that. If I were to ask you, which of the world's writings are the word of God, most of you would hold up the Bible, and as soon as you do, you're actually using apologetics. You are showing that this Bible is the word of God, that you believe that to be true. Now, I mentioned this last week, and I will say it again. If someone can talk you into Christianity, then someone else can talk you out. So why do you, if you really don't know why you believe what you believe, then somebody else can give you evidence on their beliefs, and they can probably sway you, which is why we have some young people in the church. And the Bible says, train up a child in the way they should go. So parents bring up children in the Christian faith. But at some point, you can't base your faith on what mom and daddy say. You have to know why you believe what you believe. Some would argue the validity of that statement. If someone can talk you into, well, no, they can't do that with me. I just know what I believe. I can't tell you why I believe, but I know what I believe. Well, it's interesting. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, and we're not going to read it today, but look at it, write it down. Paul provides a list of facts concerning the resurrection by which our belief in Christianity should either be accepted or denied. So based on these facts about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, do you believe you're a Christian or do you not? Because the bottom line is, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then our faith is no different than a faith in Buddha. You know, Buddha's in the grave. Big grave, but he's in there. Mohammed's in the grave. You know, all these other people are in the grave. We're putting our faith in a Messiah who rose from the dead. He conquered death and hell. So when Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians 15, he lists all kinds of evidence. Christ died, was buried, and rose again. Now, when he's preaching this, those people were around when that happened. They knew Jesus walked the earth. They knew that he died on the cross, that he was buried, and he rose again. Now, we'll probably talk about this in more detail, but how do we really know Jesus rose again? Well, he was seen by Peter. You got one witness there. Then he was seen by the 12. Now you got 12. Then he was seen by over 500 people. If you were in a court of law, two witnesses are all that's needed to prove a case. This is over 500 witnesses. Then he was seen by James, later the apostles. Then Paul himself saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. Now, when we talk about this, I want you to understand that apologetics alone is not going to save people. So we can't just say, okay, this is going to save people. Apologetics alone, apart from the Holy Spirit, cannot bring someone to salvation. But it's not one or the other. We don't just say, okay, it's just the Holy Spirit or it's just apologetics. Both are crucial in the process. Because the Holy Spirit will move someone to a position of belief, but this can be accomplished in a variety of ways. 
The Holy Spirit can do all kinds of things to lead people. With some, it might come through trials. People are going through something, and all of a sudden, they get out of it. Now, God brought me out. I can see this now. In others, it can be an emotional experience. But for others, it comes through reason. So don't discount the intellectual people that actually need reasons for what they believe. Uh, Pastor David and I were talking about this, and we thought of Thomas. Remember Thomas? We call him Doubting Thomas. Understand, Doubting was not his first name. That wasn't on his license, all right? But look what happens here in John 20, 25. John 20, 25. Many of the disciples had already seen Jesus alive, and they're telling Thomas, and Thomas is like, I don't know about this. And this is what Thomas says. I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers in them, which I think is a really odd thing to want to do, and place my hand into the wound in his side. So Thomas says, that, that's my requirement. That's the evidence that I need for belief. Now, Jesus shows up on the scene. And what I want you to understand is Jesus does not rebuke Thomas. He doesn't say, you know what? Just believe, all right? If you're not going to believe, go to hell, okay? Jesus doesn't say that to him. He understands that certain people need certain things. So look at verse 27, John 20, 27. Jesus says to Thomas, okay, if that's what you need, if that's the evidence that you need to base your faith on, then put your fingers here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound on my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. So Jesus accommodates what is necessary to bring belief into Thomas. We need to understand God can use whatever means he wants to bring someone to the faith. We, however, as Christians, are commanded to use apologetics in as many or more places as we preach the gospel. This is part of what we do when we preach. So with that said, last week we looked at the uniqueness of the Bible. Today I want to look at how we got the Bible. How is it in our hands right now? How does it exist? So if we look at how people wrote early manuscripts. How, how did they actually write things down? The earliest material to write upon was papyrus. And no, it's not the greeting cards that you buy at the store. The oldest papyrus fragment known dates back to 2400 BC. They've actually found documents that old. Now, Earliest manuscripts to survive were found in dry areas such as the sands of Egypt or in the caves such as Qumran Caves where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947. Now, I decided some of you may not know exactly what the Dead Sea Scrolls are. So let me give you a little bit of history on that. The Dead Sea Scrolls are the oldest known records of the Hebrew Bible written as far back as 2nd century B.C. These texts contain pieces of nearly every book of the Old Testament. 
While many parts of the Dead Sea Scrolls are written in Hebrew, there are also parts written in Aramaic. Some of these scrolls include Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible. Now, a monumental find from the uh, expeditions is the Isaiah scroll, which contain the entire book of Isaiah verbatim. In March 2021, Israeli archaeologists discovered about 80 new pieces of the Dead Sea Scrolls that include Greek text from the books of Zechariah and Nahum. Now, what's interesting, when they found these, and they found them at the beginning, like I said, 1947, when they began to look at these and compare them with the Bible that we have today, they discovered it was exact. So people think, oh, something got lost in translation. No, people were so particular to make sure that everything recorded and transcribed were the exact words. And we have proof of that now. So then the Bible had to be divided. Because understand, when they first wrote these, uh, like when Paul wrote letters, there were no paragraphs, there were no verses, there were no chapters. Man put that in so that you could actually find things easier. So the first divisions of the Old Testament were made prior to Babylonian captivity, which began in 586 B.C. Then around 165 B.C., the Old Testament books called the Prophets were sectioned off. After the Protestant Reformation, the Hebrew Bible, for the most part, followed the same chapter divisions as the Protestant Old Testament. Then the Greeks made the first paragraph divisions for the New Testament as early as 250 A.D. And the Archbishop of Canterbury divided the Bible into the modern chapter divisions that we now use today. One of the big questions when you look at the Bible and you think about all these manuscripts that they probably had back then, is who decided what books to include or exclude from the Bible? Did you ever think about that? Because there are other books. The Roman Catholics have more books in their Bible than we do in ours. Uh, people often bring up other books. Why isn't that in the Bible? Well, when we look at that, we have to look at the word canon which is C-A-N-O-N, C-A-N-O-N. Uh, what that meant was measuring rod or standard. And it was the term for the accepted list of books in the Bible. So the canon were, these were the acceptable books. Now, what you need to understand is the church did not create the canon. The church did not determine what books would be called the inspired word of God? It wasn't up to them. The church recognized which books had been inspired from their inception. So let me say it this way. A book is not the word of God because it is accepted by the people of God. Rather, it was accepted by the people of God because it is the word of God. Let me say that again because you need to understand that. A book is not the word of God because it is accepted by the people of God. Rather, it was accepted by the people of God because it is the word of God. So God gives the book 
divine authority, not the people of God. They merely recognize the divine authority which God gives to it. Now, there were five principles that guided the recognition and collection of truly divine-inspired books of the Old Testament. So this is the criteria that they used. Number one, was the book written by a prophet or spokesman of God? That's a good criteria. Number two, was the writer confirmed by acts of God? Was the writer confirmed by acts of God? What does that mean? Miracles separated the true prophets from the false ones. So Moses was given miraculous powers to prove his call of God. So they think, okay, he's legitimate. Elijah triumphed over the false prophets of Baal by a supernatural act. So he would be considered legitimate. The third thing, did the message tell the truth about God? Did the message tell the truth about God? Why is that important? Because God cannot contradict himself. So if you are reading something that was contradictory, then you would know it wasn't from God. I like this, and this is good for you guys to use in your daily life. The church fathers maintained, if in doubt, throw it out. If in That would be a good lawyer thing. If in doubt, throw it out. So sometimes you may hear something and you're not sure. If in doubt, throw it out. Don't get messed up in false teaching. Then the next thing, did it come with the power of God? Does it come with the power of God? See, they understood that the Word of God is alive and active. So if these passages did not have power to change a life, then God was not behind the message. And the last thing they looked at, was it accepted by the people of God? Was it accepted by the people of God? When a book was received, collected, read, and used by the people of God as the Word of God, it was regarded as canonical. That was the determining factor. Now, what were the tests for the New Testament? There was one chief test, and that is apostolicity. Apostolicity. See, the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Go over to Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 2.20 says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And then the church at Jerusalem continued in the apostles' teaching. We see that in Acts 2.42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in breaking of bread and in prayers. So when we look at that term, apostolicity, it was not merely apostolic authorship. It's not just because an apostle wrote something, but it was more based on apostolic authority or apostolic approval. Apostolic authority is never detached from the authority of the Lord. 
So if an apostle is just going out saying, look at how great I am, and doesn't recognize that the only reason why you have the ability or talent that you do is through the Lord, then we wouldn't accept that. Paul defends his authority as an apostle upon his commission by the Lord. He recognizes it's the Lord who gave him what he did. Now, this next guy, Athanasius, in 367 A.D., gave the earliest list of New Testament books, and it is exactly what we have in our present New Testament. So what I want to do now is I want to give you just a brief list of the Apocrypha. Apocrypha, yes. That is the writings or statements of certain books that are what we would call dubious in their authenticity. So these are books that didn't make the cut. They were not considered authoritative or divinely inspired. So I'm just going to read these quick. The Epistle of Pseudo-Barnabas, Epistle to the Corinthians, Ancient Homily, Shepherd of Hermas, Didache, Teachings of the Twelve, The Apocalypse of Peter, The Acts of Paul and Thecla, Epistle to the Laodiceans, the Gospel according to the Hebrews, Epistle of Polycarp to the Philippians, and the seven epistles of Ignatius. Now, why were they rejected? None of them enjoyed any more than a temporary or local recognition. So they didn't get good buzz. Most of them did not have anything more than a semi-canonical status. There was no major canon or church council that included them as inspired books of the New Testament. And the limited acceptance enjoyed by most of these books is attributable to the fact that they detach themselves to references in the canonical books. Let's look at the Old Testament, Apocrypha. Got to say that carefully. Uh, In the Old Testament, why were certain books not used, and I'm not going to name them, but they had weird, crazy stuff in some of them. Uh, number one, they abound in historical and geographical inaccuracies. Second, they teach doctrines that are false and foster practices that are at variance with inspired Scripture. Third, they resort to literary types and display an artificiality of subject matter and styling out of keeping with inspired Scripture. And last, they lack distinctive elements that give genuine Scriptures its divine character, such as prophetic power and poetic and religious feeling. Three men. David, Dockery, Kenneth Matthews, and Robert Sloan from their book Foundations for Biblical Interpretation say this, No Christian, confident in the provincial working of his God and informed about the true nature of the canicity of the Word of God should be disturbed about the dependability of the Bible we now possess. Now that we know how the Bible got here, How can we know the Bible actually came from God? We'll look at that next week.